The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning, everybody, and a happy Palm Sunday to you. Before I invite our Music Row and Cool Springs congregation participants to click over to your pastor's message, I want to just remind everybody that at 6.30 p.m. on Friday, uh, we will be holding a Good Friday service right here. Uh, All CPC coming together uh, online again for a live stream Good Friday, as Russ Ramsey has already pointed out uh, earlier in this service. And also next Sunday, Easter Sunday, 10 a.m., we'll be right here again uh, for our Easter uh, services together across the city. And now, uh, now those of you who are part of Music Row and Cool Springs congregations, you can go to the page that you're on. Uh, if you're on the website, christpres.org slash live, and you can click your appropriate congregation's uh, uh, sermon. Again, this is Palm Sunday. This is the first day uh, in what Christians have historically referred to as Holy Week. And uh, what I would like to do is uh, begin with a Washington Post article that came out in 2007 uh, featuring uh, an incident involving Grammy Award-winning violinist Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell decided that he was going to play incognito his three and a half million dollar Stradivarius violin in the subways at, uh, in, in Washington, D.C. And uh, he was wearing jeans and a ball cap and he played for a solid uh, 45 minutes. And the article says that he was passed by by about 1,100 people uh, in those 45 minutes, and only seven stopped to pay attention and to listen to the music. Now, when I first heard this story, I was dumbfounded, a bit critical of the busy-bodied people in the subway going about their way, missing uh, world-class beauty right in front of them, just content to to go on with their plans. But then I thought back to uh, an incident in my childhood when I was, oh, about seven or eight years old, and my parents 
took us to the Grand Canyon, and when we got to the Grand Canyon, I refused to look. I refused to get out of the car, and uh, no matter how hard my parents tried to get me to look, I would not. It's the only time I've ever been to the Grand Canyon, and I didn't see it. Why didn't I look? One, because I was stubborn. I wanted to be independent. I didn't want anybody telling me what to do. The other thing was that I had a video game that I was playing and I was right in the middle of the game and I was more interested in that than one of the world's greatest wonders. This is a major theme of the Bible. Verse 15 gives us the word, behold. It's, it's, it's just another way of saying look with an exclamation point. Look, behold. But we don't behold. To our own demise, we don't behold where we ought to behold, where we're made to behold. David says in the 27th Psalm, one thing I ask for and one thing I seek that I may behold the beauty of the Lord in his temple. How many of us miss the beauty that God puts right in front of us? Jesus Christ is no exception. The 53rd chapter of Isaiah paints a picture of the coming of Christ, and it says that there will be nothing in his appearance that will make us desire him. It doesn't say he is undesirable. It says that we won't desire him. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Today on Palm Sunday, the first day of Holy Week, what we have in front of us is a vivid picture of the king of the world. And it's easy to miss that he's the king of the world because of the way that he rides into town. Let's not miss him. Three points today. First, he's the king of paradox. Second, he's the king of wisdom. And then finally, he is the king of downward mobility. These are three things that we need to be meditating on this week for Holy Week because you can't get to Easter without Good Friday and Palm Sunday first. You have to go through those days and those events and those seasons to get to Easter. You can't have resurrection until you walk through the valley of the shadow of death first, and so that's what we're doing. The king of paradox. The definition of paradox is this. Paradox is a seemingly, un, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory claim that when investigated or explained, is proven true. What's the paradox of Jesus, the king of the world? The paradox is this. He comes in absolute power and absolute meekness, both at the same time. Absolute power. Let's look at verse 17, which tells us that the crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Lazarus from the dead, continued to bear witness. So the crowd here on Palm Sunday is the same crowd that had been there just prior in the previous chapter, John chapter 11, to witness Jesus raising a dead man who'd been in the tomb for four days back to life. That's why the crowd had gathered. 
They'd seen his power. They knew he could do miracles and they were ready for him to do another one. So let's look at the Lazarus incident for a second. This is, this is a close friend of Jesus. Lazarus, he's described as Lazarus, whom Jesus loved. He was sick. And then he died, and he'd been dead for four days, and you've got a whole village in grief, and Jesus never showed up. Mary and Martha, the two sisters of Lazarus, knew that Jesus was the person, was the one, because he was God, who could have prevented their brother's death from happening. Each sister, when Jesus finally shows up, four days after the funeral, what kind of friend does that? Each sister, in her own way, says, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. There are two things in that statement. One is worship. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. You have the power. We've seen you walk on water. We, we know you turned water into wine. We've seen you lay your hands on people with incurable diseases and they would be healed instantly. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. That's a statement of worship, but it's also a complaint. It's a protest. If you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Where were you? It reminds me of that song by the Indigo Girls called, Hey Jesus. And the singer is pictured as one who's been broken up with by somebody that she loves dearly. And, and she turns it into a prayer to Jesus. The person I love, the song essentially goes, the person I love has gone away. And Lord, when we call you in our despair, you don't come through. When we call you in our despair, you don't come through, so I'm not going to call on you anymore. That's what the lyric says. Can you identify with that? I've had those moments. See, because Jesus has absolute power. With his words alone, he spoke the galaxies into existence. With his words alone, the centurion comes to him and, and, and says, my servant is, is deadly ill. Will you heal my servant? And Jesus doesn't even go to the servant. He just speaks and says, your servant is healed. And the servant was healed. When Jesus speaks into the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus in John chapter 11, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And it says, the dead man got up and walked out and lived again. That's the kind of power that he has. And when this Lazarus incident happened, which is what caused the crowd to reassemble again when they hear that Jesus is coming into town, they want to see him doing, do another thing spectacular. It says that many believed when he raised Lazarus from the dead, but there were also a couple of other groups. There were the power people, the scribes and the Pharisees who saw this as a threat to them, it was a threat that Jesus, in front of large crowds, had raised a dead man back to life. And what do they do? They plot. How, how humorous is this? How pathetic is it? They plot to kill Lazarus after Jesus has risen Lazarus from the dead. And they plot to kill Jesus on top of that. Because his power is a threat. That's, that's like an ant 
a little ant, a tiny little bug, getting together with, with 10 friends and saying, let's go kill us a human. I mean, the reality is that, 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 that one human being could take his or her pinky and squash 10 ants to death in a matter of seconds. And here you've got power people, mortals, saying, let's kill Jesus. Let's put God to death. You know, C.S. Lewis said that when you argue against God, you're arguing against the very power who makes it possible for you to argue. He's the one who gives you the ability to argue. And so you think you can defeat God? You know, Psalm chapter 8 says that the galaxies, the galaxies are the work of his fingers. What a human can do to an ant with a pinky, God, God exerted similar power with his fingers to create the whole universe. And so John chapter 10, verse 18, this is two chapters prior to where we are today. Jesus says ahead of time to his disciples, just so we're clear, no one takes my life from me. It's going to look like my life's being taken from me, but no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. That in itself was an act of power. Who has the power, the inner fortitude to lay their own life down? For the sake of others. I don't know which is more powerful. Good Friday or Easter. Both of them. Were acts of great power. But he doesn't just come in absolute power. He also comes in absolute meekness. The crowds. Misunderstand Jesus also. It's not just the scribes and Pharisees. The crowds misunderstand him. Because here's what they're thinking. Jesus raised a man from death. That's just a foreshadowing. That's just step one. Here's what what we think he's going to do next. He's going to conquer Rome. See, what they're thinking is that he's going to be this political military hero who's going to conquer Rome. Well, what about Rome? Rome was a civil rights nightmare. Everyone who wasn't at the top of the food chain experienced oppression on some level. If you were a woman, you dealt with the reality of gross inequality. You could not be unfaithful to your husband, and if you were, you would be put to death, but your husband could sleep with as many people as he wanted to. It was just part of the culture. Children were vulnerable. We have record of a letter written by a Roman businessman who was traveling, and he wrote the letter to his wife who was pregnant, and, and he says, I'm going to probably be later coming home than I would, would have thought, and if the, if the child is born and it's a boy, keep it, but if it's a girl, throw it out. That was very common. And if you were a boy... Pedophilia was rampant. It was part of the culture. It was normative practice for older men to abuse boys. 
It was socially accepted. Owning slaves and mistreating slaves, human property, humans owning humans and mistreating humans was part of the norm. If you were elderly, if you were sick, if you were poor, you had no, you had no support from the government. You were on your own and typically you were left to die. And if you were Jewish, living in that context, you had been living all of your life with a pent-up frustration and even anger mixed with hope. God, and this is how your prayers would, 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 would be prayed, God, bring us back to the days of Exodus and Egypt when you rescued your people from the mighty oppressive Pharaoh, do it again, Lord. And all that they had in mind for their vision of the savior of the world was, was, was somebody who was going to come as a political winner and a military hero to conquer Rome in the same way that God had conquered the Egyptian Pharaoh, with violence and with power. And in comes Jesus. knowing that even his disciples shared this mindset that might is right. You know, Luke chapter 9, some people in a Samaritan village, all they have to do is hurt the disciples' feelings for the disciples to say to Jesus, hey, why don't we call fire down on these Samaritans and destroy them? Let's call fire down from heaven, shall we? And, and it says that the Lord rebuked them. All it takes for us is to get our feelings hurt, to want to call fire down on somebody, and to exert power over them. But here's Jesus Christ, the king of the world, riding into town, not on a mighty horse after he's risen a man from the dead, not on a mighty horse, but on a humble Mule. He's not marching to triumph this time. He's marching to his own defeat. It says in verse 12 that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. That's New Testament code for he was moving toward his own death. Moving toward the fulfillment of the mission for which God sent him into the world to die for the sins of many. So in chapter 13, which is the next chapter, it says that Jesus gets on his knees and he washes the feet of his disciples. And then after that, he's betrayed by Judas. And then all the other disciples flee as well. He's arrested, left on his own to die. And then he gets the cross. And the wonderful irony of history is this. The cross was not his defeat. The cross was his ultimate victory. You know, in Romania, Christians are known to refer to Jesus Christ as God the loser. And that's not in any way, shape, or form an insult about Jesus. It's a statement of how Jesus chose to identify with our broken and fallen human condition. By going through the cross, 
to get to the resurrection, by going through Good Friday to get to Easter. For there's no other way. C.S. Lewis put it this way, Jesus is not proud, he stoops to conquer. He will have us even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him. And we come to him only because there is nothing better now to be had. He stoops to conquer. That's how kind and generous and meek Jesus is. He knows how prone we are to treat him as our last resort. And yet that's enough for him. He stoops to conquer. One byproduct of his meekness is his empathy. Empathy is this uncanny ability that Jesus has to crawl into the emotional skin of others. You know, the Lazarus incident. Mary and Martha, both are sisters to this, this dead man. And they're experiencing the exact same set of circumstances, but their responses to Jesus are very different. And Jesus has this uncanny way of caring for them according to who they are and what they're feeling and how they have been fashioned. Martha asks the same question that Mary does. Where were you? If you'd have been here, our brother wouldn't have died. That's just another way of saying, don't you care? But Martha, being, being an intense personality, being a justice person, Martha asks this question with an exclamation point at the end of it. Do you care? And his answer was, I am. He responds to, to, to her aggressive stance with power. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will never die. Mary asks the same question, except Mary, as a tender, sanguine type, asks the question with a question mark Do you care? Lord, do you care? And it says that in that moment, with Martha, same question, different person, it says that Jesus wept. He entered into her tears. He, wa he walked into her emotional skin to live there with her. Empathy. Behold your God. Absolute power and absolute meekness. Secondly, the king of wisdom Wisdom is the ability to see things as they really are, combined with the fortitude to act accordingly. Two things about Jesus' wisdom. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and his goals are better than our goals. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Our, our impulse, whenever we're faced with conflict or crisis, or fear, or setback. Our impulse is to scramble and look to our own wisdom, to our own instincts, to our own feelings, to what the prevailing thought is uh, in our own culture, 
for wisdom in terms of how to find the solutions. And so the crowds say that the real problem here is social injustice. The Romans have taken away our human and civil rights. And the the only legitimate answer to that is a mighty man of power, like Nietzsche's Ubermensch, Nietzsche's Superman, exerting the will to power. Might is right. Come put Rome in its proper place. We want a military hero, not a king on a donkey. Then Mary and Martha, they're saying the, the greatest problem on earth is families separated because of death. We want you to do God's work, Jesus, but we want you to do God's work our way. You should have shown up before he died, and if you showed up after he died, at least you could have comforted us during the grieving process. If you would have been here, how many times have we asked that? If you would have been here, And then, of course, he quotes from Zechariah 9, where he says, Fear not. (laughs) Behold, your king is coming, and he sits on a donkey's colt. He's reminding them that, 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 that even Jesus coming into town on a donkey is an exertion of God's power. It's a fulfillment of something that had been predicted and prophesied years ago. And here he comes. Will you recognize him? He's right on schedule with what the prophets said would be. Are you with him? He's right on schedule. You know, Isaiah says it this way. The Lord through Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts and my ways are higher than yours. And so your role in crisis, O people of God, is to get low and to wait on the Lord. His thoughts are higher, but his goals are also better than ours. The crowds wanted a political win. Mary and Martha wanted their brother back on their terms. They're going to get their brother back. I mean, even Martha knew this. Lord, I know that you will raise my brother up on the last day, she says to Jesus. But I want him back on my terms. And then you have Jesus. You know, the disciples are confused too. Like, why didn't we show up? Why aren't we going to the funeral? Why aren't we helping Your sick friend whom you love, Lord, why are we waiting? Why are we sitting here? And Jesus gives this answer that feels very confusing. Jesus says, Lazarus is sick. This is before Lazarus died. Lazarus is sick. And it says, because Jesus loved them, loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he delayed coming. What? Because he loved them, he decided not to heal Lazarus. Because he loved them, he decided not to show up to the funeral. Because he loved them, he decided to momentarily crush their spirit through deafening silence in one of their most painful seasons of life. Because he loved them? And then Lazarus dies. And Jesus says to his disciples, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad. 
I'm glad I wasn't there. What on earth? The history of the world includes human beings either openly accusing God or secretly questioning him for his incompetent management. I mean, almost every single Bible writer wrote either from a place of being in exile, in, under oppression, or in jail. And yet, what did God do with that? The Bible is the best-selling book of all time, the most read book of all time. It has utterly changed history. Here we are in the 21st century. Here, here, here's what the king on the donkey going to his death has led to. He had 120 followers back then after his resurrection. Now today, just today among the living, 30% of the world bows the knee and follows this king on a colt. I was told by one of our staff members last week that uh, Google has reported a surge, a massive surge in online searches for prayer during this season of coronavirus. When we think God is incompetent as a manager, maybe God is up to something that our eyes are not able to see and our ears are not able to hear and our hearts aren't able to perceive it. Maybe he's up to something significant and even better than the recovery of the Dow Jones, the recovery of our illusions of control, the recovery of our temporary comforts. Maybe there's something greater. Maybe God wants to remind the world you're going to die. The mortality rate is still one person for every one person. And I'm asking you, world, to step out of your world of denial and to deal with that reality head on. Because if coronavirus doesn't get you, if the, the collapsing Dow Jones doesn't get you, if unemployment doesn't get you, death will. It will. And what you need is not my action on your terms. What you need is I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will never die. And I weep with you in the meantime. Your questions with an exclamation point at the end of them, I respond with my power. Your questions with a question mark at the end of them, where you're pleading with me to help you understand. I don't have explanations. I give you myself. I give you my tears. I give you my empathy. I crawl into your emotional skin. Quite literally, the Holy Spirit living inside of you. The wonderful counselor living inside of you, crawling into your emotional skin. I am glad. Because I love you. And you need to understand that your circumstances are not that which tells you that I love you or that I don't. In fact, it is my love that is the grid through which I want you to look at your circumstances. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from it. In addition to the online searches for prayer, 
There are empty sanctuaries like this one all over the world today. Churches that can no longer meet for who knows how long, reporting everywhere that their church attendance and participation is higher than it's ever been in the history of their churches. Maybe God is up to something that we just don't understand yet. Remember, fast forward a couple thousand years in history, and here we are today, naming our kids after Isaiah, John, Mary, and Martha, and naming our dogs after the Roman emperor Nero. Behold the power of God. He's the king of downward mobility. That's the final thought. Henry Nouwen was a renowned scholar, Notre Dame, Yale, Harvard, sought-after speaker and writer. He left all of it at the peak of his career, at the peak of his own influence. He left it all to pastor a small community in an obscure small town and that small community was comprised of people with mental disabilities. Reflecting on seasons like this one in his life, Nowen wrote, Scripture reveals that real and total freedom is only found through downward mobility. The divine way is indeed the downward way. Jesus moved from power to powerlessness, from greatness to smallness, from success to failure, from strength to weakness, from glory to ignominy. The whole life of Jesus of Nazareth resisted upward mobility, resisted the ubermensch, resisted the will to power, resisted might is right, and picked up the basin and the towel to wash feet and rode to his death not on a muscular horse, but on a bony mule. The irony about Henry Nouwen is that the greatest impact of his entire career happened from that obscure place. His greatest books, The Return of the Prodigal Son, The Wounded Healer, and many more came from those seasons. Jesus calls us to resist upward mobility and to lean into downward mobility as well. The way up is the way down. It's right there in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are. It's another way of saying happy are. Great are. Strong and powerful are. The poor in spirit. Those who mourn. Those who are meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who are merciful. Those who are pure in heart. Those who make peace. Those who are even reviled and persecuted. Why? Because Jesus, your king, he went first. He stoops to conquer. He's the king on a donkey who then became the king on the cross. I'll close before I pray with these words. It's a lyric from a Michael Card song called God's Own Fool. And the lyric goes this way. So we follow God's own fool, where only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. Beloved, let's be fools for Christ, surrendering to his wisdom and to his thoughts and his ways that are higher than ours. 
and to his goals that are better than ours because they're everlasting goals. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, teach us to think and to see and to understand according to your wisdom and not according to our own. Lord, teach us to surrender our own limited instincts, limited feelings, limited perspectives, limited cultural values. Teach us to surrender those things and put ourselves under your wisdom and your better goals. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this week of all weeks, Holy Week, we call it, where you start by riding into town on your way to your death. And then Friday comes, and then quiet Saturday, and then bursting forth in glorious day, the event that changed history, which we look forward to celebrating a week from now. But for now and for the moment, Lord, we weep, we lament, we put ourselves at your feet. In Jesus' strong name, amen.